Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper? Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of a head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. In the next few weeks over this period, I would like to introduce new followers to some of the past guests of Heads Talk, and in parallel, some of the great conversations I've had with C-suites of multinationals about the topics of the day in their area of business. I do hope you enjoy this Look Back series, and I have enjoyed sharing the first set of Look Back episodes late last year and very early this year. Um, There will be two guests in each episode and they will be introduced accordingly. Brecken Darrell, the then CEO of Logitech, now CEO of VF Corporation, with its 12 brands, the North Face, Vans, Timberland, Supreme, etc. I felt this was a conversation that um, Bracken had had a number of times, and he was figuring out his best response as a, a leader in to, 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 to a very complicated, challenging situation in time. Um, incredibly honest, and it also made so much sense. Um, have a listen. And how has it changed you? You know, I've learned so much during this pandemic period. It's incredible how much I've learned within the last 18 months about myself. I'm, uh, I've always been you know, probably on, on the face of it fairly humble, but boy, I realized how little I knew about so many things, you know, starting with uh, DE&I. You know, I thought I was one of the good guys in the pre-George Floyd world where I fretted over every awful thing that happened to any you know, BIPOC person, including uh, Rodney King back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But I realized I hadn't used my platform to really speak up about uh, racism, and and in that in that case, American racism. And I and I, you know, so it was like a frying pan of the head. I felt like you know, gosh, I was like one of those business leaders in South Africa during apartheid. Where was I? You know, yeah. so I've tried to change that. But you know, that's just a microcosm of all the things I've learned. I've learned so much about my leadership. I thought I was the master at creating psychological safety, making a place where you really felt safe at work. I realized I'm pretty average. I've got a lot of work to do on myself. Thought I was a good coach just because I was a good athlete and I always played sports and people, I was a natural leader. Mm-hmm. But I realized I didn't do a lot of coaching. I just kind of gave people the problems and, and left them alone and then intervened when I felt like I needed to. So I've learned so much about myself and all those are probably a reflection of being you know, more reflective in a world where you're by yourself a lot, you know, mm-hmm. whether you're on do- Zoom or not. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think you, I think you need to hold that thought because the next question pretty much touches upon some of the stuff that you said your eyes were open to, so to speak. Um, it's it's about diverse teams, and um, that's a very hot topic today. And um, as you said, post the George Floyd incident, um, what does that bring to the table? And can you tell me of your experiences with and without diverse teams and decision makers on the executive table? Yeah, the murder, the murder of George Floyd was such a turning point for so many uh, of us, you know, in, in, in leadership and in the world. I mean, in the United States, at all levels, I mean, all, probably all over the world. Um, 
I think it, it was uh, a watershed moment, maybe the most transformative moment in my life. It was four or five days after it happened at my kitchen table that it really, this whole thing kind of appropriately crashed down on my head and, and hurt like crazy and continues to and should. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not about what's happened in the world. It's about why I didn't do more about it and a lot earlier. So I think now if I reflect back, I'll, I'll, there are all kinds of diversity, but I'll focus on the, the one that every single person on this call can relate to, which is being around people like you. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and not just people who might look like you, but people who might think like you. I'll remember, I'll never forget I had a job one time where uh, the entire team was very similar in their, their way of kind of decision making, whatever, you know, whatever personality test you took, and we didn't take one, I would guess we'd all fall in the same quadrant or the same bubble, you know, or whatever it is, an ENTJ or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was amazingly exciting because we would make decisions so fast. I mean, we, things would come into the group and we, we'd talk about them for, you know, literally five minutes, everybody would align and we'd just go. That was the first time in my life I experienced that. And it was the single most terrifying um, period I think I've ever had because that, that was a really raw, pure look at what, and by the way, that was an all white group, mm -hmm. a few women, mostly men. And it was a it was a really clear look at how you could potentially run a company right off a cliff if you have a lack of diversity, and uh, we didn't run off the cliff, but we're, that was probably because several of us got moved into other jobs pretty quickly after that. Mm -hmm. But I never forgot it. I don't think I did enough about it. I was focused focused a lot on gender diversity, but now I'm really focused on all kinds of diversity, and I realize, boy, you know, it's so impossible to really sympathize with anyone else that if you don't have a diversity of, of as many types you can on your on your team mm -hmm. you're just going to miss the conversation you better go out and find it somewhere if you don't mm -hmm. so that you make sure you engage other people who see things differently than you do mm. and so, so what do you think other leaders in your position should do to address this current situation that they're not doing what do you think they should be doing what's the start how do they go about starting to do things like that you know, I think there are two steps, neither is easy, that every leader, every CEO should be doing. And if, you, if you, you're not a CEO, but if you're a leader of something, you can think about, well, how this applies to you, because it does. Two steps. Number one, build diversity, equity, and inclusion into your purpose. Not a value, purpose. Put it into the purpose statement. Nothing will send a stronger message to the rest of the organization that you're serious than that. And it's a really, frankly, it's a fairly easy step. Most purpose statements are pretty bland. They all sound, you know, they're, they're probably 10 different varieties you can come to and they're just worded a little differently. So by doing that, you will make the strongest statement you can possibly make about how, how, how much, how intentional you want to be about it. Mm -hmm. Second, the second thing you can do is train. And that's even harder. It's much harder because just finding great people who can do your training is not easy. But finding a way and a path, there are lots of different ways you can train. You can start with, uh, as we are, with psychological safety, or you can start with anti-racism, which we've done a little of. But get view this as a curriculum that's going to go on for the rest of your career and the rest of the company's life, probably. The, 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 uh, the, the, the pages of diversity, equity, and inclusion to learn and the behaviors to change are so deep and so broad that it's, a, it's going to be uh, an encyclopedia, not a pamphlet. So those are the two things that I think every single leader should do. And, I, and I'll address one barrier to that. There's one primary barrier to that, which is CEO conviction. 
If a CEO mm. doesn't have enough conviction, neither one of those is happening. And, the, and so you could ask yourself, if you're not the CEO, how do I create conviction in my CEO? And I don't know the answer to that, but it's probably through um, continuously raising it in, in different ways, from different angles, from different people. You know, I hope one day that, you know, the vast majority of CEO, majority of CEOs, and I think a lot have, by the way, have the same conviction that, that, that I think I do about it. But I hope more and more will feel super strong conviction about this. And I think they will. Mm. It, it's the classic, it has to be driven from the top uh, and commitment from the top in order for it to succeed. Um, my final question on this episode of Talk is firmly about you and what you will leave behind when you do decide to hand over the reins to another individual. Do you want your legacy to be? I'm really not about building a legacy. I'm totally about the future. So everything I do, you know, when I, when I grew up, uh, my mom and dad divorced when I was very young. I was about nine or 10. My, my mom kind of fell apart. You know, I had four car wrecks in one year. And, and uh, she used to use me and probably my siblings too, although we never talked about it, as her psychiatrist or psychologist, therapist. And she'd come home and talk about things. And she'd very often dwell on the things that, that she wondered if she shouldn't have done. And she'd question it. And and I, I finally developed this uh, analogy and I said to, I said, mom, you know, you need to act like you're standing on a beach. You got a stick in your hand and you drag that stick behind your heels and everything behind that stick is over. Mm-hmm. Your whole life is right in front of the stick all the way out. So everything that's behind you is just to learn from. And, um, and so I've, I've con- <laughs> maybe I've talked myself into that belief so much that I don't care about a legacy at all. I care about making sure that people are constantly growing and learning and that the organization and the people there are ready for the next act, whatever that is. And you know, if you will call it a legacy, I'm about the legacy of the next thing, not the, the thing that's passed. The next guest, Susie Levine, was the US ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein. Um, it, it was an animated conversation and recorded just after President Biden assumed office. Um, there was excitement um, in the air for Susie, uh, and you can probably hear this if you listen to the full episode. A great conversation. Um, have a listen. And it was very, um, it took my breath away in that conversation, but then I put back on the game face and went back in the room and continued to engage with folks, serving mm-hmm. cakes and talking with folks and doing interviews. And then my husband got a call um, from our son who was in the carpool with our daughter. And our son said, um, our our daughter's crying about the results. Mm -hmm. And it was very emotional. And again, we had film crews and audio mics that were monitoring us. And, And my husband basically was not able to engage at that point. I had to do one more interview and then he shared with me what had transpired and then um, I had to excuse myself. And it was very upsetting. Um, It was stunning that our electorate could elect somebody who had so demeaned women, who had so little preparation, whose policies were so anathema to us and to the well-being of our nation. And so we went into some deep soul searching about how had, how had this happened? 
And what could we do to fix it? We are, we are both fixers. We are both people who look at a situation and rather than wallow in it, take a step back and say, what can we do to, to fix this? Mm-hmm. And we um, obviously couldn't officially get to work right away because I was still in my nonpartisan role until January 20th. Mm-hmm. But we did, uh, when we went back to the United States for a visit, um, we started just asking questions. And it became very clear that Trump wasn't the cause. Trump was the result. And the result of um, two things. For one, a very inequitable recovery from the recession. That wasn't anybody's fault, but it was that people weren't thinking about how to recover in a way that everybody gets to recover. And there were a lot of people feeling like they had been left behind and were looking for change. And that was one issue. And the other was that of the Democratic Party had invested at the top and not in the infrastructure of the party itself and not in down ballot races. And the 2016 election was less the election to look at historically than the 2010 election. And what happened in 2010, when Barack Obama had been in office for two years, was it was a referendum on the Affordable Care Act and on the president. We were still in the midst of the recession. The Affordable Care Act benefits had not yet been felt. And the Republican Party very wisely had invested in state level races or cantonal races. Uh And the way our democracy works the states are the ones who determine the boundaries for what are called legislative districts. Mm-hmm. And they did something profound uh, and evil. They gerrymandered, which meant that we no longer had a representative government. Fewer people now represent the larger population. And they structured these seats in a way that they would maintain majorities in these cantonal or state level legislatures to then change the composition of our Congress and have the House of Representatives no longer be representative of our nation. And that then led to significant obstructionism and significant discord that then was laid at the foot of President Obama and the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And as a result, that discord and that inability to deliver for the people translated into um, translated into a loss for the governing party and led to Trump. And Trump also tapped into these fears and worries that people had with regards to their inability to get ahead during this time frame. And uh, and so that's that's how we were feeling then and but it's interesting then, that Sorry, Susie. It's interesting that you say that, and I'm not quite sure if that's an element of hindsight, because a lot of the political pundits, the politicians, the experts, even the talk show hosts, nobody was getting the mood of the people at the time. They were getting it all so wrong. There was a disconnect. And I'm asking, is there still a disconnect, even though what you're saying to me right now is an analysis of what went wrong? Um, So... I separate out the analysts from the pollsters and I'm not going to talk about the math and the polls and and that, but in terms of at the time in 2016, 
seen or some who were tapping into it. And I think that there are uh, a lot of folks in the Midwest, a lot of people who were raising their hand and saying, hey, you need to listen to these folks mm -hmm. and understand what they're going through and what their life experience and lived experiences are. And um, I feel incredibly blessed to have had the opportunity in Switzerland to see the apprenticeship model there because it allowed me and my husband, who very much was my partner in this, to, you know, to recognize that the 2013 versions of ourselves think that the now 2020 or at the time 2016, 17, and 18 versions of ourselves are, are bananas, are just crazy because we recognize that the path to success has many beginnings and they do not all start with a university degree. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the composition of our nation, really a majority of people don't get these university degrees. Mm -hmm. And what we had done was placed so much emphasis on that, but it was inappropriate for many. For many people, no, that's not exactly accessible as well. Exactly. And it's incredibly expensive. And then for those who do pursue it, it leads to unbelievable levels of debt from which many people never emerge or they don't emerge until their 50s or 60s. Mm. And so we unknowingly had gained incredible insight into what was happening across the United States. And that was through this element of the dignity of work and how to provide more of that. So I would argue that there were many who did see that and were listening and were hearing from people, but not enough. Yes. And, and the other thing too was we hadn't evolved in our language, which was what gives me a lot of hope now with regards to both how, yes, how the Democratic Party has restructured and retrenched and really done dramatic and improvements, but also how this Biden campaign and now the president-elect efforts are focusing on build back better okay. and an and equitable recovery okay. and a recovery that really emphasizes the middle class and how people, whether they are in poverty and we want to lift them out of poverty, whether they are middle class and we want to strengthen the value proposition of that, and that is a core value and guiding principle for the work that is happening now. Now that concludes this episode of the Look Back series. I hope you enjoyed these snippets and do check out the full original episodes in the show notes. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinational. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.